This month is Menopause Awareness Month. And so we're opening up important conversations on human cogs with two remarkable humans who invite us to sit inside the lives of those who have experienced menopause prematurely, well before the average age of 51. While we explore all of the usual challenges that menopause brings, we also unpack the grief and complexity of an early menopause transition. In this episode, we meet Kirsty Costa, an award-winning educator, global environmentalist, values-based leadership coach and self-confessed bird nerd who at the age of just 31 faced what she describes as her triple whammy year when she lost a pregnancy, discovered she carried the BRCA breast and ovarian cancer gene and experienced a devastating early menopause. Now, we know that these days, especially with where the world's at right now, that the idea of resilience can be thrown around pretty liberally. But in this powerful, insightful and emotional conversation, we see this truly actualised in Kirsty as she shares how she continues to get up and show up in the world when so much of her is still grieving and trying to come to terms with her own experience. Kirsty highlights how living with hope and optimism can actually be a galvanising roadmap through the highs and lows that life brings and how fate is far less relevant than the choices we each choose to make every day. And just a word of note to our listeners, this episode touches on the deep grief and trauma of needing to make a decision to terminate a pregnancy and also what it's like to be diagnosed with the BRCA gene. It's a real and authentic and very inspiring conversation. However, we do acknowledge that some of the content may be triggering for those who have lived through similar experiences. Here's our chat with Kirsty. Kirsty, thank you so much for joining us to chat today and share your story on Human Cogs. We could introduce you ourselves and certainly you and I know each other, but I'd actually like you to introduce yourself. And if you had to tell someone who you are, what would you say? Great question. Of course, always evolving. At the moment, I would say that I am a change maker. So one of the things that I do is that I help people create change that they want to create in their personal lives and the world around them. So I'm an award-winning teacher. I've been working in education for over 20 years. And in particular, I specialise in environmental and conservation education in my paid world. And that work involves basically helping young people and teachers and students to be able to create the change they want to create in their world about the things that they care about. And I specialise in behaviour change and also through the narrative of hope and optimism. So that's my professional life. But outside of that, I'm a wife. I'm an owner of a um, cavoodle called Charlie. I am a huge nature lover. And more recently, I became a bird nerd. What is a bird nerd? It's it's my new branding for someone who really loves bird watching but isn't so hardcore that they would chase birds around the world or really know that many facts to wow everyone at a dinner party. It's an amateur casual bird watcher. Who um, So I, I live down in the southeast of Melbourne in the most beautiful part of nature. I've got wetlands, I've got beach, and on my walks I get a bit excited when I see a fun bird. So, so you're not a fair dinkum ornithologist? Which I'm definitely you? not. And currently no. I work in a science-based organisation where there are plenty of those people and there's no way that I would be able to hold my own in a conversation about birds. Yeah. Okay, well, you're already one step ahead of me in the bird department, so I'm not going to dig any deeper in the nerd bird or the bird nerd world. <laughs> you just mentioned something that did pique my interest, and that was hope and optimism, uh, the lens through which you work through. And you've also mentioned in 
previous conversations, your passion for values as a roadmap for life. Can you share some of your earlier influences with regards to both hope and optimism and other values that are meaningful to you today? I guess I had a bit of a light bulb moment around this about halfway through my 20-year career in education where I guess I, you know, like all things, you think all of a sudden you've had a light bulb moment, but actually you've been arriving in the, at that idea for, you know, through a range of experiences over that time. I think one of the things that we have at the moment is we tell the people, and in particular young people, that the world is broken, that, that they need to fix it. You know, that adults don't have this, that people aren't working together, that the world is broken and every individual is responsible. I arrived at the understanding that that's actually not super effective in terms of being able to create hope and optimism that problems can be solved. And why, one of the reasons that I arrived there is I guess I grew up like if you talk to a lot of people who work in environmental education or conservation, a lot of them have the same story, which is that they grew up in nature. So my mum was a geography teacher. My dad was an entomologist, which is a scientist who studies insects. So I grew up with this amazing education of the natural world. Uh, I grew up in my backyard. I grew up looking at, you know, uh, rock pooling. I grew up just surrounded by nature, going camping, going on family holidays. I had a really wonderful childhood for that reason. And I think that that curiosity of the natural world made me love it. And then that's also been connected to thinking about how do I help other people love the natural world. With the work and the research and the training that I've done around values, I've, you know, I've learned that obviously values affect the way that we think, feel and behave and they come from lived experience. And I really love that, you know, thinking about how we honour people with where they're at right now because of the life that they've led. I think that's a really respectful way to, an empathetic way to be able to think about people who are different from us, particularly in a world that starts to feel like it's becoming quite divided. That's how I kind of arrive with values. And once I understood the hope and optimism piece and how important that is in helping people be able to create change in their world. And then along with that, honouring people with where, where they're at, with their lived experience and therefore listening to them and what their values are has actually made me a better change maker. But I think that's something I learned in my 30s because in my 20s I was your classic environmental activist. I worked for Greenpeace. I worked for Oxfam Community Abroad. You know, I think I might have worn Birkenstocks and and socks at some point. I think I worked at a food cooperative at university, you know, like I was the walking cliche. And as part of that, in your 20s, when you're kind of really, I think, forming your understanding of the world and forming your understanding of other people, uh, you know, you can get really stuck in your own dogmatic views. So lifting out of that to be able to understand where people are at and understanding how people, whether or not they want to change and just honouring where they're at, I guess that's really become a huge part of my philosophy in the way that I approach everything that I do for my relationships to my working life. In your 20s, Kirst, you big greeny you. In your 20s, you met your husband yes. and um, and it was, a you know, a big decade of growth for you and uh, you've referred to it as your, your sort of triple whammy period of your life. Tell us more about what started to happen for you as you as the greenie stepped into the world in your 20s and you met your husband and then, and then you, you progressed up into life. What, what I didn't tell you about that story of my childhood is that I had a lot of illness. So at the age of three, I had my first asthma attack. It really scared the bejesus out of me as a three-year-old. And that was the beginning of a history of significant health challenges. So I was often hospitalised 
because of asthma. I was your classic allergy kid, you know, eczema on my body, here comes spring, oh, no, (laughs) that kind of thing. I also think I was a bit of an environmental barometer. I could definitely tell you if there was smog in the air or if I was standing near someone who was smoking. So I think that actually has led to my love of nature because I became almost like an environmental barometer as a kid. And I missed out on a lot of birthday parties as a kid. You know, I was often the sick kid on, on bed. And that unfortunately stayed with me throughout my teenage years as well. In fact, I almost didn't finish my year 12 because I didn't have enough attendance to be able to do that. And big ups to my school who kind of fudged the figures a little bit to allow me to graduate. So I got to the age of 18 and I was studying a journalism degree at La Trobe University and I was just really unwell. And my specialist said to me, I think you need to get out of here. And so I actually went and found my health outside of Melbourne in New South Wales and that was the beginning of me starting to even be able to run for the first time and, and feel well in my body and feel confident and strong in my body. And unfortunately, that then had an effect in my 20s. When my husband and I returned home after living in Japan for a few years, I had my first panic attack where um, I think I went almost through the equivalent of a nervous breakdown because all of that fear and all of that trauma that came from a childhood of illness, I actually hadn't properly processed And like all things, when you suppress it, it comes back to you tenfold. And I was having crippling panic attacks, all the classic things that people who have talked about panic attacks, anxiety go through, like checking into ER at the hospital, having a heart monitor, you know, them not knowing what's going on. And it was the third trip to the ER where the um, the clinician said to me, I think you're having panic attacks, Uh, having crippling agoraphobia in the morning, really having to get myself out of bed and out of the house. And that was interesting for me because I've always prided myself on being a really strong person, you know, obviously very strong and independent after coming out of that phase of illness and it really shook my world. So I then worked through with a good therapist and kind of got myself out of that space over a a period of time. And in my 20s I met my husband and we um, got married, we bought a house together and it was almost like that, you know, ridiculous Uh, narrative that we often follow in society, how these heterosexual relationships would go. So then, of course, we started thinking about a family. And at that time, I was a primary teacher. You know, I I loved kids. I was known as being someone who was really loved playing with children and hanging out with them. And, you know, my passion for conservation and education came together and mashed together in a really nice way when I decided to become a primary school teacher with the view that I could share my love of nature and the environment with the young people that I was teaching. So we got married um, in 2009 and then we started our family and we started that plan and we got pregnant pretty quickly, which I felt very lucky to have have happened. And unfortunately, um, at 14 weeks, we found out that we weren't going to be able to um, keep the baby. And so um, the doctor told us that the skull hadn't closed properly around the the baby's skull, uh, you know, like around its brain, and it would actually last the pregnancy, but it wouldn't survive the birth. So in some ways that decision was taken out of our hands. One thing that I've noticed through sharing this story with people is we often talk about miscarriage and how absolutely heartbreaking that is for everyone involved in that experience. What we don't talk about as often is actually people who have to make the decision to terminate their pregnancy, Um, whether that be for their personal reasons or whether that be because of the health of the baby. That was probably the most challenging experience in my whole life. And um, 
you know, I remember that time as a time of depression. Um, I remember having really bad morning sickness that actually stuck around after we lost our pregnancy. I remember the absolute love of my friends and family who held me so tightly and so closely along with my husband during that time. I remember six months later uh, crying and my husband saying to me, is there anything that I can do to stop you crying? And I said to him, I just want a dog. <laughs> and that's how our dog arrived. And I can't, um, I underestimated how healing that would be to have another little fluffy friend to be able to pour love into. So that was the first whammy. The second whammy that happened is during that time, my aunt got tested for the BRCA2 ovarian ca cancer, breast cancer gene. And um, she'd had a series of cancers. She's an incredible woman who survived them all. And so the rest of my family got tested and I got my results while I was pregnant. And um, the breast cancer ovarian cancer gene uh, just means that, you know, you've got a significant more risk of getting those cancers. Uh, there's a whole lot of preventative stuff you can do. And also, I'm, you know, through the help of the hospital and the, and the specialists that I was working with, they onboard you into an incredible monitoring program. So you can really, you know, test and keep up with that. So that was, you know, pretty confronting to find out about that gene on top of that. Found out about the gene, lost the pregnancy, and then my periods didn't return. And a lot of the specialists and the people that I saw assumed that that was because I had not, uh, I was stressed and I was going through grief. And when that happens, hormones happen and things change. But then the hot flushes started and it, uh, the day before Christmas, <laughs> oh, the way life works. The day before Christmas, I found out that actually taking the pill had masked my menopause symptoms and that actually I was in perimenopause. I was grateful to hear also that the loss of the pregnancy hadn't been because of the menopause that had been something else. But it was a real triple whammy year for that reason. How old were you, Kirsty? 31. Yeah. During that time, we bought a house, so that was amazing, and we bought it by the sea. And also during that time, I just was reminded about the amazing people that I have in my life and how they continue to show up for me and my husband even in those times. And I think what got me through was being in nature and also being held by people, basically. And your dog. And my dog, my little fluffy friend, yeah, Charlie. So that was the triple whammy year. And at the time, actually, I'd stepped out of the, the primary school classroom and I was working at an education environmental organisation. Also at the time, what I was really grateful for was um, meaningful work, you know, having something that I felt like I could contribute to, something that I could pour some energy into outside of what was happening in my personal space. And that was also interesting because I'm someone, I think because I feel like I missed out on a bit of life earlier on in my childhood, I think when I hit my 20s and 30s, I felt like I had to make up for it <laughs> and probably have been ever since. Now I'm in my 40s. And so I've been, um, I'm really driven. Um, I like being involved in things. I like saying yes to things. I like being part of things. And this um, process of, of trauma and grief really limited my ability, especially my brain function, which was something that I really prided myself on. So that was a time of just um, readjusting my expectations on myself in that meaningful work, but not going so hard into that meaningful work that I threw myself there and didn't deal with what was going on. So that was, mm. 
yeah, that was a learning in itself on how to do that, how to be able to function in your private life, in your professional life when there's grief, you know, and, and shock going on in your personal life. Thank you for sharing so deeply and openly about that that whammy of a time. It, it sounds just so intense with those waves of complexity coming into your life for you to deal with. What about the expectations that's, that you might have had that are based on social norms of society about women and, and mothering? How did you um, move through your thinking about that in terms of your own identity? It's a really important question. I'm really grateful you asked that question. When you find out you can't naturally have a family, it is amazing how many people start to make all the suggestions of your alternative pathways. So, and sometimes when people did that to me, it made it sound like I hadn't even thought about it. Have you thought about adoption? You're like, ah, yes. (laughs) So we did look at other options. We looked at overseas adoption. We looked at Australian adoption. We looked at fostering. We looked at egg donor. We looked at IVF because I didn't have a lot of egg supply. A lot of that was tricky. And then on top of that, um, being able to take hormones for that when you have a breast cancer, ovarian cancer risk at the time was tricky. Although to be honest, I haven't fully kept up with the science around that. So no one should take my word for that. They should always talk to a specialist about that. There was all this, okay, well, you can't, you've been through all this grief and trauma, but don't worry. You can now put yourself through the absolute ringer to find that. So it got to a point where my husband and I sat down and said, we really want a family. And also we want me to be cancer free. And we also don't want to put any more pressure on our marriage, which has already been through a really tough time, although very grateful that we were able to come together as a team and stay together as a team during that time. We actually made the choice to not take any of those options. And the response from some of the people in society and in my life was surprising. It almost is an expectation out there that you will put yourself through everything in order to have a family. I was really shocked by that. And I'm also was really shocked by if I told people I didn't know very well, or even strangers, sometimes it comes up where people say, oh, do you have any children? Like how many times does that come up when you're like off the cuff talking to someone you don't know very well? And when I said to them, oh, you know, no, like I could have chose, I could choose to say no. Um, Often that will come with a question about, oh, why? Like it's amazing how people feel permission to ask that question. So now I say, oh, unfortunately we couldn't, or I will answer, yes, I'm a godmother and aunt to seven incredible kids. So I've got my own version of that, but people feel really surprised when, when I say that we didn't take that pathway and that is something I'd really like to change in our society about the way that we talk about this stuff. Yeah, because you just explained so beautifully the way I heard what you just said was we have um, the option of family, we have the option of health. Well, not we. You were you were looking at the option of family, health, and your marriage. You you shared that quite succinctly, and then said, and we chose health, my health, and our relationship, and that is what people struggle with. Yeah. And yet I love the way you phrase that. And is this a story of priorities, values? How do you think you knew that those were where you wanted to put your energy and focus, your health and your primary relationship? The answer to that question is that it took me a really long time to figure that out because they're all important. 
you know, I was a primary teacher. I love kids and I'm good at it. I love being around kids, I, you know, because I love to play. I'm creative and I'm curious. Um, you know, I'm, I'm good with kids. And to let go of that, to prioritise self-relationship and health over that thing was, was huge. Apparently, according to my mum, when I was four years old, she asked me, what would you like to be when you grow up? And I said, a mum. Like, that is a narrative that I've had with me <laughs> all my life. So I guess in some ways it was a decision around risk, managing risk. That's how we ended up having to have a talk about it, right? So what's the risk if we take the drugs and we try IVF? What's the risk? And so we had to go and find out that risk. What's the risk to our marriage if we go through potentially, it's, it wasn't your classic IVF journey, although I don't think there's that such a thing either, you know, it was going to not maybe involve an egg donor. It was mainly going to involve me not carrying the baby. Um, you know, what's the risk around that to our marriage, the stress that's going to place on our, our lives and expense around that. And then on top of that was like, what's the risk to ourselves, you know, our sense of self. I think at the end of the day, we worked out that those risks were higher than the option of having a family. Also knowing that the option of having a family was not going to come easy to us. You know, all of the complication around my situation meant that the chance of having um, a, a child through any of those avenues was actually less, uh, especially, you know, maybe not so much for the foster care and the, and the adoption, but for the others as well. Something that I would really love to see in our society is an acceptance that if people decide, they don't, like, first of all, there's a whole lot of women out there who don't want to have children and they, and I can see it all the time because I pay attention to these things on social media, they often feel ostracised, Right. So you've got that. And then on top of that, you've got a group of women and men who would really love children and for whatever reason can't have them and have made the choice to not take up those options. Um, and they also feel ostracised. So there's some work to be done in the way that we talk about fertility, the way that we talk about family, the way that we talk about women and women's health, I think. Yeah, I agree. And I think um, there is sort of a canonization of the maternity, the maternal figure. We see that through religions, but but that's still quite there in society, isn't it? And we see it played out, play out also. Look at not to get political, but Julia Gillard's treatment, you know, as a yeah. childless prime minister, and and that actually came into the way that she was viewed um, in her broader identity. So there are some archetypes that persist in society around, uh, not for men, um, but for many women that that you know to to be a mother, there, there's something sort of. Um, I don't know, expected about that or, you know, and that, that's a big dominant thing that must be difficult to live with as we see it play out in media or whether that's social media or in, in, in other narratives. Yeah. What do you, uh, how do you sort of make your story then more, more known, you and other women who, who by choice or circumstance, um, you know, uh, are, are not in, in that maternal path? What do you think can be done and how can listeners um, better understand how to help share that there's another story out there? I guess the other part of my story is around premature menopause and um, that adds a level of complication. And I actually haven't met that many women who have got premature menopause. So there's a couple of different ways that you can go through menopause really early. It can be surgically induced. So something's happened surgically where, you know, you've had to have had bits of you removed or bits of you changed. Um, and then there's early onset um, natural menopause, which is what I've had. Um, and there's not enough information or research yet around why that happens. Um, there's a couple of, you know, genetic things, but I tested negative for those. The way that I've done it is that I have 
being okay to move through my grief and my trauma and as part of my healing process, I've been vulnerable enough to be able to tell people about it and I've told people about it in a really public way. So I am honest with people when they ask and I have sought out opportunities for me to be able to share my experience to help others. So, for example, there is um, lots of resources out there now about early menopause that weren't there when I experienced this 10 years ago. So I've put that pain into purpose around that. And also it's totally fine if someone who's gone through what I've gone through doesn't want to talk about it. You know, why should it be on them to have to be that vulnerable, to have to revisit that pain in order to educate other people? So I think part of this is about figuring out as a person how much you want to be part of purpose and turning that pain into purpose. And for some women, like for me, I got lots of invitations once I started talking to journalists and other people about it as part of some projects I was part of. You know, I got some invitations to kind of really go hard on it if I wanted to, go on podcasts, write books. And I decided that actually for me to be able to move on, I needed to let go of part of that story and not keep living it and not keep being in it and not keep talking about it because um, otherwise I wasn't going to be able to move on in my life. So part of that is also knowing when to to let it go and move on a bit as well. But that's all part of wherever everyone's at in their healing journey and the sort of support that they've got in order to do that. The other thing, though, that has been really great for me is actually starting to see this stuff in popular culture. So I got this flood of text messages a few years ago because there was a main character on Neighbours who had premature menopause. I also got a flood of text messages because on an American TV show, one of the main characters had found out she had BRCA and ended up getting her breasts removed. I would think that would help all the Kirsties out there is better representation um, in our in the things that we consume to kind of normalise and start conversations. One of the worst things about what I've been through was it felt incredibly lonely, you know, like to feel alone in an experience is, is really hard. So I think any way that things feel normalised, the better. So that would be the big thing is not having to rely on all people like me to share their stories but having people who, you know, help build narratives that our society is part of, having them being able to weave these stories into what they create would just be incredible. You share so candidly and you've explained why turning pain into purpose has been part of that uh, journey for you. How do you navigate your own pain and your own pathways to purpose alongside your husband's who's also experiencing his grief and his loss? Yeah, that's a really good question because my husband's really different from me. So he's very private. <laughs> There's no way he would appear on a podcast to talk about what we've been through, although he's very happy for me to do it. Um, every so often he will he will talk about what he felt during that time or how it affected him. But I think that during that time, because I was really falling apart, he had to stay together to do that. I can't fully answer that for him because... There's probably still a lot of things going on that we haven't shared with each other because of that time being so traumatic with each other. But one thing that I do know is that being a team has always been really important to us, feeling like we're on the same page even in our disagreements. You know, maybe not same page but same side. All through that time we constantly talked about how we could stay on the same team. You know, how do we make team decisions? Gosh, it feels really primary school as I explain it. You can tell my education background. But that, um, that is something that has kept our relationship solid for a very long time. We've, we've been together a long time, you know. And so 
Um, and it, it's also, though, as I say that, a real acknowledgement that I know of relationships that haven't worked out through that, through really challenging circumstances like that. It's a tricky one to answer. Yeah, and, and of course, we can't speak for another. And I think what you just described is anything but primary school. Um, I see a lot of couples in my work as a therapist. And what you just said then is very, very powerful, that you see yourselves always on the same team, not on the same page. It would be unrealistic to expect that um, we and our partners see through things the same way. But to know you have the what I call weeness, which my kids always laugh at because I think it's also the word for the end of your elbow and other things, I don't know. But it is this this um, shared lens of navigating together that's so powerful, not being in agreement or the same. Yeah, and I think you could apply that for the people around you as well. When I was going, lost my baby and I also was going through menopause, I was in my late, you know, early 30s and everyone around me felt like that they were popping out babies so I think that, um, you know, as part of that, that weeness, it also has to be brought into your relationships with other people. And one of the biggest bits of advice that I often kind of provide for people who, who reach out and say, hey, I'm going through what you went through, well, what would you recommend is knowing your boundaries. So, for example, I have a no baby shower policy. For me, whatever reason, that's like super triggering to go and sit with a whole lot of people and celebrate a pregnancy that I actually experienced and understand what that's like and not, and yeah, those group environments are not good for me, my mental health. That has been painful for some of the people in my life for me to not be at this very important event for them, but having that shared weeness and their understanding. And I always make an effort to have our own little baby shower, just the two of us, um, outside of that group environment where everyone's sitting around talking about babies and pregnancy and stuff that is triggering for me. So I also, like, I think some of my friends tiptoe around me when it comes to their pregnancy. They worry about the impact it might have on me. There's some conversations they don't want to have. So I, I'm really clear with them and say, I'll let you know. I'll let you know if this is too much. I'll let you know if I don't want to talk about this anymore. And then that way they feel like that they're on the same team as me and they can just lean into the happiness of what they're experiencing without having to worry about me and my my mental health. So there's a few ways that I've applied that philosophy across my relationships. Which is amazing, Kirsty. Like it's incredibly we, the way you've thought about that. I mean, there's me and you, there's the me that is you in there, but it's incredibly expansive and wise, you know, that you've been through all this and you're able to still find room in there for celebration and, and, and love despite the, you know, the triggering and trauma um, that, that you've been through yourself. When you think back on all of that stuff, I mean, obviously you and your husband, you know, met and bought your house and the world awaited you. You've said that you don't think things happen for a reason. What are your thoughts around sort of fate and whether there is some system in play in our big universe or in our ordinary lives? Yeah, it's a really interesting thing to ponder about the relationship that we have with this concept of fate. So for me, I'm open in saying that I'm an atheist. I, my values don't have a religious connection. I do find spirituality in nature and connection with people, but I don't believe in a God or a higher being. One of the things that people often said to me when I was going through this time as a comforting thing, which was for them, is everything happens for a reason. That wasn't actually not very comforting to me because it's not part of the way that I, my belief set and my philosophy. And so it really made me think about during that time how I felt about that phrase because I heard it a lot. 
I don't believe that things happen for a reason, but I do believe that we get chucked lots of stuff in our human experience and there's lots of pathways that lay out before us and we are constantly on a micro level every day making decisions around how we want to live our lives and the direction our lives might be taking. Also acknowledging that there are definitely things outside of our decision-making that influence that pathway. And I've just, you know, obviously told a whole story around that for me. I guess through that process, I really better down my philosophy that when life doesn't work out the way you planned, and I definitely had a plan, it's about how you respond in that moment. And for some people have a better capacity of being able to do that than others based on their brain and their life and their trauma and their own stuff. But for me, I was able to find some sort of inner strength. And I think my husband would say the same to be able to say, right, this is not going to work out the way we planned. What does this mean for us now? And it's not fate. It's not everything happens for a reason. This is what has happened. So what are we going to do now? And how do we be kind and gentle on ourselves in this process of figuring that out, knowing that we won't again figure it all out? And I guess that totally changed me in my 30s where I went, right, okay, this thing around having a plan and then carrying it out isn't necessarily always going to be guaranteed. So how can I be agile? How can I be flexible? How can I stay active as a problem solver? in the experience of life so that when stuff happens, I am not totally devastated that and feel like a failure that somehow the plan that I'd created isn't going to work out. And I've seen friends and family who have had maybe sometimes a fixed mindset around that and how challenging that can be, especially that feeling around failure when things don't work out. So yeah, I don't believe that everything happens for a reason, but I do believe that it is about how you respond to life and you know how you pivot all the time through that process. Does anxiety still play a role in your responses to the challenges that come your way? That's a great question. And the answer is absolutely. (laughs) That's something also that I've been open about as well. You know, again, if we go back to this concept of pain into purpose, once I was able to move through the worst of that time in my mid-20s and I started to share my experience, it was amazing how many people came out of the woodwork as having experienced anxiety. Even little things like, oh, yes, I never sit in the middle of a cinema. I have to sit on the end. Or I never get on a tram if it's really crowded. So there's all these levels, obviously, of anxiety that we all carry with us. And for mine, it was full-blown enough where I had to tell people what was going on with me because it was affecting my ability to show up for them. That anxiety has stayed with me my whole life, my health anxiety. And I've actually helped some people that I really love get through almost the equivalent of what I went through, nervous breakdowns, because of it. A lot of people look at where I'm at, you know, like, if you look at my resume of what I've done in my life, I've, I've lived a very big life in the time that I've been here so far. Again, probably a little making up for lost time vibe. And also, you know, I've been on stage with Al Gore. I've shared a stage with Tim Flannery, David Suzuki, some of the most, I would consider some of my heroes, the most influential people. I've shaken hands with Jane Goodall. You know, I've done some really important things in my in my professional life. But underneath all of that is still me working through my mental health caring for myself, knowing that if I don't sleep, then things are not going to be so great the next day, knowing actually that alcohol, for whatever reason, does not help my wiring of my brain and I've had to really drop off how much alcohol I'm drinking. So this, um, I'm still really proud of who I am. I'm still really self-assured. I'm confident. I, I believe in what I'm doing. And there will always be this story of health. There will always be a management of of anxiety, they'll always be checking in on the breast cancer gene and ovarian cancer gene to make sure that's not, you know, happening in the background. And there'll also be 
always a journey of acceptance that that plan around having a family didn't work out. Part of your journey and your, you know, living with anxiety and your, um, I don't know, just just sitting in that and moving through the difficulty of of that, even on an ordinary day, is you've talked a lot about nature as a healer and and obviously as an environmentalist and and a global expert in in, um, education in that area, um, that immersing in nature and ancient forest as a healing place has been really important to you. Um, Can you explain a bit more about your relationship with nature in your life now? It's really interesting, actually. I had a light bulb moment again, you know, we arrive at them when I was over in Berlin a couple of years ago and we were with my brother and and his partner. We were in the middle of Berlin in the most incredible apartment and we were there at Christmas with all the Christmas markets and what a time to be in Germany. Part of my soul was really sad. (laughs) I couldn't figure out why, right? I was just having the best holiday and I realised because I had developed a life where I actually rise with the sun and I'm out in nature most days as my first thing that I do. And we're in the middle of a dark, cold, snowy Berlin winter where that wasn't as much of an option. Something in me went, oh, this is actually a really important part of what I do. A month without that actually has significant consequences. There's so many, I mean, I could spend hours telling you about why nature is important to me and that feeling of interconnection that I have, that we are nature and it is us, which drives pretty much all the work that I do. But there's something humbling about nature which I really love. So when you walk through a big forest or you stand on the shores of an ocean, that forest and that ocean existed before you arrived, before you were born, before you were dealing with the chaos and the feels and everything else that's involved in the lived experience. And fingers crossed, if we care for it properly, it will exist long after you die. You know, my philosophy is that we're born from the earth and we go back to the earth. And there's something humbling about that because it almost makes me feel, well, it does. It makes me feel insignificant in a wonderful way where I am actually just part of a large ecosystem, a large planet, a large solar system, all this. When you're going through trauma and you're going through personal issues, and I would argue even when you're going through a global pandemic, you can get really in your own stuff. You know, you can get really in your own head, in your own world, and everything that's linked to you can feel really important. Nature gives me a wonderful perspective where I'm able to step back almost from myself and be just in it, knowing that I am not fully in charge of it. What it does, it will do without me. It takes some of the pressure off. And also I have found such an important part of mental health because um, I can be super present in the moment in nature you know, that awe and wonderment that works in the brain. And, you know, this is my education degree speaking, but, you know, a habit of mind is awe and wonderment and how important that is. And I get that from nature all the time, which really grounds me in the present in a way that other experiences in my life don't. And I guess hilariously, I mentioned before, and I did it deliberately, I must confess, talking about bird watching because I've discovered that's the most incredible mindfulness thing you can do. You know, um, when you see a bird, and, you, and if you've got binoculars or whatever you're looking at it with, you're trying to identify what it is, what's that sound, so you start to tune in your senses, what does it look like, how big is it, what bird do I think that is, you leave everything else behind, you're super in the moment. And so that I think that's a huge gift that we underestimate with nature is how mindful you can be and how present you can be and how humbled you can be and how in some ways it actually can lift off a whole lot of feeling of responsibility that humans feel when they walk through life. For those who are listening, who are thinking, oh, I, I think I want some of what she's having, 
Um, I want to feel that mindfulness. I want to feel present. I want to feel the acceptance. I want the awe. I want the connection with self and another, at least the weeness that you've described. What What are some tangible, practical, day-to-day practices that you think might lend themselves to some of what you're having? It's like a Harry Met Sally orgasm question. <laughs> <laughs> I love the context. One of my favourite ones that was actually recommended to me by my therapist because as I went through all of this experience of being a woman and having female changes and also being a human that's experienced significant health challenges, something happened during that triple whammy year where I actually started to disconnect self from body. I lost trust in my body functioning. I lost the trust in my strength of my body. I I felt like my body had left me down. And, and that was really hard to, to process that. I almost, as literally you can hear, I'm still a bit disconnected. I talk about the, my body as being separate from me. <laughs> it has its own name. It's not me. And that's just still a work in progress. A really wonderful activity that my therapist gave me as part of that is to take my shoes off and walk in the grass. So to feel your weight, to feel nature at your feet, to feel grounded in nature and to feel your body and how strong your body is when it's grounded in nature. So that sounds like the most, it almost sounds like I've returned to my Birkenstock and socks stage of my life. Yeah, taking your shoes off and walking in nature, lying on the ground in nature, uh, trusting that when you do that, you're not going to be bitten by ants and spiders and bees and just kind of let go of your concerns around that is one really cool way to do it. That sounds weird, but works. The other thing is we walk through life, a lot of us at a fast pace. I've really enjoyed Um, a show on the ABC that's running at the moment that's all about slow movement through nature. And I think slowing down is really key. In the work that I do, we often encourage young people to stop, to listen, to observe, to not walk fast, to not walk past what's happening around us. And so I stop in the morning when the sun is rising over my local wetlands and I look out and I take that moment with the sunrise and I'm in it. I also love photography. So If you're a photography person like me, that's another really great way to connect to nature. People would say you have distance when you look through a lens, but actually I would say that there's intimacy in looking at nature through a lens. So I I think my phone is full of sunrises and sunsets and birds and all that stuff, but that's another way that you could connect with nature is through your phone or through your camera. And then the final thing is just about working out where you feel happiest in nature. You know, for me, I've got so many places that I love, but for friends of mine who aren't so connected to nature, there's normally at least one place where they feel really connected and that might be the beach or it might be a river or it might be a park near their childhood home or wherever that is. And if they can't reach that at the moment for physical restrictions, then there is a way that you can do that online, you know. Here's my here's my big confession. Like I'm really like warts and all in this interview today. My husband and I love when people attach a camera to themselves and they walk through the streets of Japan. Um, There's lots of YouTube channels where people do that. But if we feel like we need to go back to Osaka where we lived, we can actually just look it up on YouTube and it's literally not the person talking, but it's their view and almost the feeling of moving through that space. So if you're not ready to get out in nature, you could try with a bit of YouTube therapy just to build up the feeling of being there. It's like vicarious, vicarious travel. You and I are both Japanophiles. I also lived there around the same time that you did, but in uh, in Tokyo. Um, Kirst, random question. If you were a bird, which bird would you be and why? I love this question so much and I've never been asked it. 
So, you know, thank you for making my bird heart so happy. I think that I would be a magpie because magpies have one of the most complicated songs. In fact, I'm sure there's some, as I told you, there's some really hardcore bird person out there who's screaming at their, um, you know, at me right now saying, this is the actual fact. But I think it is that um, magpies have one of the most complicated songs or calls in the Southern Hemisphere. Their ability to be able to communicate with each other is like off the charts. They're not just saying, oh, hey, there's a worm over here, but they're like, look at that guy and check out that tree and who wants to come back to my place? Like they've got this real complicated communication going on. And magpies just get this really bad rap because such a small percentage of them swoop, but they're swooping to protect their babies. And for me, that also is like, I'm sometimes a bit of a, you know, a bit of a protector when it comes to the people I love. Like I want to, I'm definitely not attacking other people to protect them, but I've got a real sense of belonging and community and keeping family and people safe. So I think I would be a magpie. Also, like, they're stunners. You know, they've got a little bit of a black, a little bit of a white going on. You know, they're, you know, they're, I think they're where it's at. Yeah. And then I also hey, have a... Somewhat- sorry, you go, Sabine. Oh, no, you, you go. You, you I was going to say, I also have a really a soft spot for spotted partalotes, which are these gorgeous little birds that are... I've got spots on them and they have a beautiful call. And my grandfather, um, in his will, left me his bird book and his binoculars. This was before, I mean, obviously you could see how I arrived at birding because of all these things. But he, um, and, and the um, page that he had earmarked in his bird book was a spotted partalope. So, hmm. you know, shout out to George. And also shout out to my 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 papa, Wall, who was a, a magpie supporter, a Collingwood supporter. So, I, I only this week it felt like I reconnected and fell in love with a magpie and it was through watching a video. I don't know if you've seen, you can Google this, Google magpie and staffy and there's a, a puppy and a, a baby magpie that gets adopted by a family well, and, and the dog's not a puppy, it's actually an, an older dog and they connect and the magpie breastfeeds from the puppy and attaches like a mother figure and then this dog goes on to have its own litter and the magpie you know hang they've spent years together connected and it's hours of footage playing it's it is the most incredible some of the most incredible animal footage and um so you you know I just had to share that with you as a magpie lover check check it out it's something and you already knew. You already knew that Maggie's were special and that they were talking some kind of language. But um, this That's kind incredible. Of I can see that video now getting heaps of hits. Hey? Well, maybe we'll um, we'll put a little link in the show notes so that, Kirst, as you as as a bird nerd and as I've listened to your story, just to, to really push that analogy of ornithological bird stuff. I think, like magpies, you have got a complicated song, you know. But it's a song, and it's. Uh, now I'm going to do it. You did this last time, Vera, and now I'm going to have it um, struggle through the words. But um, I think it's amazing that you do constantly take flight, even though you've lived through um, what you have. And I get the great privilege of working with you and um, calling you a friend as well. Um, so thank you for sharing with us. Thank you. That means a lot. And um, again, pain into purpose. You know, I hope that it, for me it would be an achievement. Um, that someone listened to this episode and somehow they felt seen or less alone or 
um, now feel better about walking past magpies, then I feel like I've really done my job here. So thanks so much for having well, me on the episode. Yeah, and there's already two of us, already two of us that do. We do like to finish our, our pod with the same question and that's um, acknowledging the pain and the emotion and the uncertainties that life throws and wondering who you think is doing human well in the world. That's a really great question and I um, there's so many people who are doing good in the world and that's what gives me hope and I just wanted to give a special shout-out to teachers in that space. I think... Teachers are the most incredible humans who don't get enough credit. Everyone who's had an education seems to have an opinion on education and there isn't enough trust that teachers are doing a really amazing job in what they do. Every day I get to work with the most incredible teachers and I get to work with teachers all over the world, whether they're in education providers like me or whether they're in classrooms. And I think that teachers have been part of the um, fibre that has pulled our community together in times of adversity and they don't get paid enough for being able to do that. So, um, yeah, shout out to teachers everywhere and thank you for all the work that you do and the strength that you show in helping young people deal with physical, intellectual, emotional, you know, things going on in their lives as well. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com.